May I have you open with me in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 27. Last week, Dr. Beely began to take us through uh, the cross of Christ, and it's a hard thing for us to think through. It's a hard thing in terms of just coming to grips with the human suffering that takes place there at Calvary. It's a hard thing because the injustice and just the unfairness and the wrongness of that whole scene. And in some ways, it's a hard thing for us because we know the end of the story. Because we know uh, that the cross is not the end. We know that the tomb is not the end. We know that the resurrection is coming on Sunday. We move through the cross so quickly sometimes to get to what we know is coming. And, and there's good reason for that. The resurrection is absolutely the central hope of the Christian faith. The life that Christ took so that he might be the first fruits for us. But so much on that cross that we cannot miss. And that although it's horrible and it's horrific and it's ugly that it is the place where our redemption was accomplished. And that although it was ugly and although it was brutal and although it's difficult to look at, that we're reminded that not a moment of that happens out of sequence. Not a moment of that happens outside of God's perfect control. We could look back to Isaiah 53, which we'll do in a minute. We could read through Psalm 22. We could see all of these details prophetically given and each of them playing out and unfolding exactly as God designed. But then Dr. Beely gave a very pointed application last week that we don't want to get too far away from. And that is as we look at the cross of Christ, we're brought back to his words that command us to daily take up our cross and follow him. He gave a good definition of what it means to be a Christian, and that is that Christian is and listen to these things. Because this is the background for what is happening in Matthew 27. 700 years before the cross of Christ, Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many of you, or as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see. That which they have not heard, they understand. For who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, And acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked, 
and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And yet, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord, at the cross, we come face to face with the suffering servant. No less a king, no less mighty, no less divine, no less powerful, no less glorious, no less the very Son of God, but the Son of God, the King, the servant given to suffer for his people. Lord, as we behold the cross today, as we consider the darkness and the desperation of that moment, I pray that you would drive home the reality that the wages of sin is death. Expose our hearts. Leave us bare before you so that we might find the joy of repentance salvation and forgiveness offered in Christ alone. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We read those things in Isaiah 52 and 53, and they're familiar. We read them often. And yes, they speak to the physical anguish and agony of the cross. Yes, they speak to the the human rejection that Christ faced. And we've seen that all the way through this Passion Week narrative, the hatred of the Jewish leaders toward him, the physical torment that was involved in the cross, even before the cross with the scourgings and the crown of thorns that Dr. Bealey went through last week, and the, the physical just burden that was there. But there's something fascinating that you read in that chapter of Isaiah 52, because in that chapter he says that his appearance was marred more than any man, that his physical form was changed to where he was barely human. And we're kind of forced to wrestle with the fact that that is either true or it's not. In the rest of that chapter, we're willing to take things at face value and celebrate the fact that all of these things happened on our behalf. But we read over that and we have to wonder, what exactly made this so very different? In all of human history, Jesus was not the only man to be scourged. He was not the only man to be crucified. His death was nowhere near as long as many on the cross. And yet, Isaiah says there is something absolutely different about this. What is it that made this particular death more unbearable, more unthinkable, more physically even disfiguring than any other in human history? And as Isaiah 52 poses that reality, Isaiah 53 answers the why. Because this isn't just another crucifixion. This isn't just another criminal on a cross. It says over and over that in this death there is the work of God. That God was pleased to crush his son. And on the cross of Christ, that is what we see. The righteous, holy, pure and perfect wrath of God poured out against sin. 
And when we come away from today, no matter what else you remember, that's what I want you to understand. That the cross was not just an instrument of death, that the cross is the place where someone stood in our place. Jesus Christ endured the wrath of God against sin. And we saw a few weeks ago that as he's in the garden, he prays, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And last week, Dr. Bailey started the crucifixion in the cup of Christ. And here it comes to a conclusion. So that's what we're going to do first. We're going to open this up and we're going to look at the cup that Christ continues to drink, really the fullness of the cup that Christ was given in Matthew 27. And as we open up verse 45, I'm going to start to work us through a difference that happens. And on the surface level, it's very easy to see because Matthew chapter 27, verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And we say, well, there's one difference. Apparently it goes from light to darkness, um, but there's more to it than that. Again, last week, you got a good timeline of what things looked like. Uh, Jesus was on the cross by about 9 a.m. And according to this, the sixth hour, about six hours into the day, roughly noon, time's not nearly as precise without the technology that you and I enjoy. But when the sun is at its highest, when it's at its peak brilliance and heat, it stops. And there's darkness over the land. But in those three hours, there's a great distinction that happens, not just physical light to darkness. Because for the first three hours, while Jesus is on the cross, he says a number of things. Matthew's gospel moves us through these very, very quickly. But you put the gospel accounts together, and you see that on the cross, Jesus Christ is interacting with people. Luke 23 tells us that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the way that Luke phrases that, it's actually implied that he says that over and over, that this is this continual thing that Christ is saying while he's on the cross. Now, can you imagine that? As the nails are being driven, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As the crowd passes by and mocks him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As the thieves on the crosses next to him berate him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When every breath is a struggle, every word out of his mouth is gracious and merciful. As you move on in Luke's gospel, he gives us another interaction, this time between Jesus and one of those thieves on the cross. We know that Matthew and Mark tells us that they were harassing him as well, that they're hurling abuse at him as well, that one of the thieves says, if you are who you say you are, save yourself, and why don't you save us while you're at it? But at some point, God gets a hold of the heart of one of the men next to Christ, and he says, what are you talking about? We deserve this. You and I are up here because we are wicked men, but he doesn't. He's innocent. And he turns to Jesus and he says those famous things, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus reply? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Can you fathom that? From a condemned criminal to an heir of the kingdom in a matter of hours. Proof that God is able to save the most wretched in the most desperate circumstances. It's a beautiful, encouraging thing. John's gospel gives us another interaction of Jesus as he's there on the cross. And again, I think sometimes we see the cross from a distance. You have to understand the cross is eye level. Rome wants you to look into the eyes of those who have gone against them. Witness their suffering. Witness their shame. And Jesus sees his mother. And he entrusts the care of Mary to John, the disciple that he loves. 
Why? Well, presumably Joseph is no longer alive at this point. Jesus' brothers, we know at this point, don't believe in him. And so he tasks John with caring for his mother. It's this tender moment where even as he's dying on the cross, he demonstrates love for mom. It's a tender and beautiful thing. Why go through those things? Again, they're kind of put together from the various gospel accounts. What does that have to do? Well, one thing it does is it highlights, again, the beauty of Christ, doesn't it? In the midst of unthinkable physical suffering, he is shown to be perfect, always pleasing to the Father, always doing what is right. When I get a little bit tired, a little bit hungry, I can be really difficult to be around. Here's Christ undergoing what I could not even imagine, and he just proves faithful and loving and gentle and merciful. But the second reason I want to bring through those threats, the second reason I want to bring those out is because something happens now. As we're in Matthew 27, something happens. There's talk. He's interacting. But from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, for the next three hours, Jesus says nothing. As the light fails, as darkness covers the land, the sun is silent. So let's look at that darkness because we might not have the greatest conception of what's happening there. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Uh, That's something remarkable. All kinds of naturalistic ways that people have tried to explain this, that it was an eclipse, uh, that it was some great gathering storm that made the land seem dark with clouds, or maybe it was dust particles in the air blown in from the deserts. Uh, Understand, this is not a natural event. This is a supernatural event. And more specifically, this is a divine event. How do we know? Because if we know our Old Testament, we know that there are times when the presence of God comes and darkness follows. Now, more often than not, we think of the presence of God and we think of light. And rightly so. God is light and there is no darkness in him. We know that clearly. We look to the book of Revelation and we see these great pictures of God dwelling in light with his saints forever. We can even look back in Matthew on that Mount of Transfiguration. And when the glory of Christ is revealed, there's this brilliant, shining, dazzling light. So light is absolutely associated with the presence of God, but not always. If you were to go back to Genesis 15, you don't have to turn there now, but I would encourage you at some point this week, Genesis 15, uh, we see that God is interacting with a man named Abraham. And God has made some significant promises to Abraham. In fact, he's made a covenant with him. He said, Abraham, I'm going to give you three things. A land that is yours forever. I'm going to give you seed, descendants, like the sand on the shore, like the stars in the sky. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Land, seed, and blessing, these three hinge points of the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham asked God, how do I know? How do I know that these things are going to take place? And God takes him outside and he shows him the stars. And he says, if you can number these, then you can number your descendants. And it says that Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as faith. Abraham didn't work for his salvation His belief, his faith is what saved him. But then we see what in fancy terms is called the ratification of the covenant. It's the ceremony that seals that covenant. And in Genesis 15, verse 12, this is what it says. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, 
dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that you serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. And God goes through the pieces of these animals in this, this ceremony that seals that covenant. But you have to understand that the presence of God at the sealing of that covenant was one of darkness. The presence of God in darkness. You fast forward. And it's 400 years later, and God does bring those same people up out of Egypt. And in the book of Exodus, chapter 19 and 20, he brings those people to the foot of Mount Sinai. And maybe you remember this from the flannel graphs or the Sunday school stories or the VBS, but Moses goes up on the mountain, and do you remember what it's like on the top of Mount Sinai? It's darkness. Moses writes about it in Deuteronomy, and he says that there was darkness, clouds, and thick gloom. And what is God doing at that point? He's giving Moses the law. The Mosaic covenant is being brought into effect. As God enters into a covenant with his people, the presence of God on that mountain is shown in darkness and gloom. It's very interesting that as God enters into covenant relationship two different times, the presence of the Lord is demonstrated in darkness. Now, that's not the only times that the presence of the Lord is demonstrated in darkness. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 10, you would see that as God is pouring out his wrath on the Egyptians, that the ninth plague is one of darkness, a darkness so deep that it can be felt. Not just physical darkness, but a penetrating, palpable darkness. Prophetically, you look through some of the minor prophets that talk about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord that we mentioned in Matthew 24 and 25. Joel chapter 2, verse 1. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Joel 2, 31. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. And you look forward to the book of Revelation and you see that as God pours out his judgment upon the nations, upon the unbelieving world that has rejected the Son, as God pours out his judgment, it is demonstrated in darkness. So now you pull back from that understanding, from the biblical perspective, and you see that the presence of God is sometimes shown in darkness. Particularly as it comes to bringing in a covenant, and dealing with sin. What do we see at the cross of Christ? What had he done with his disciples the night before in that upper room? As they move through that familiar Passover meal, Jesus gives it an entirely new significance, doesn't he? This bread is my body given for you. This is my blood in this wine. And he calls it the blood of what? A new covenant. 
Ezekiel and Jeremiah promised this new covenant hundreds of years before. They hadn't heard anything about it for 400 years. And now the Son talks about a new covenant that is brought in in His blood. And on the cross, you see the blood of the new and better covenant poured out. And you see the presence of God in a penetrating and terrifying darkness. And what else is happening on the cross? We read about it in Isaiah 53 that he is stricken by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquity, chastened for our well-being, the Lord causing the iniquity, the sins of us to fall unto him, cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people, the Lord being pleased to crush him, putting him to grief as he renders himself a guilt offering, he himself bearing the sins of many. The idea that on the cross, not only do we see the blood of the covenant put into effect, but on the cross, we see the penalty for sin, the righteous wrath of God poured out in darkness, in judgment. That's a lot to go through. It's kind of a lot of background, but it's important because you say, well, we've only gone through one verse, but you have to understand that that darkness means something. That God wasn't just covering the suffering of Christ to make it more bearable or less embarrassing. That it wasn't just the forces of darkness that were trying to make his day even worse. That it's not an eclipse. It's not something natural. The darkness at the cross is not the absence of God. The darkness at the cross is the very presence of God of God. A new covenant is coming into effect and the blood of that covenant is being poured out. The wrath of God against sin is being poured out upon the Son and He bears that wrath for the sins of all of those who would be redeemed for all time. He is afflicted until every drop of the cup that the Father has given Him is poured out. How does that work? How can the wrath of God be poured out against sin in a span of hours? I can't tell you. But I can tell you that it had to be Christ. Because only Christ could bear up under the wrath of God and satisfy it. And only a man could stand in the place of men. A fit substitute for us. Sometimes we talk in our theology about the nature of Christ and being truly God and truly man. We don't understand why it matters. This is why it matters. If Jesus is not God, he cannot bear the wrath of God. And if Christ was not truly man, he cannot be a fit substitute for men. He must be exactly who he is or none of this works. So for three hours, Christ suffers the righteous, active, just wrath of God. And darkness covers the land. Silence. And then something changes. And I think what changes is even more jolting than the darkness. Because it's a departure. Look at verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, 
That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine that out of the stillness and the darkness, suddenly the light is back on. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After bearing the wrath of God in silence, something happens that makes the sun scream out. And what happened is a separation that is unlike anything that Christ had ever known. And to understand what happens, you have to understand something about the nature of Christ. We just talked about it, that idea of being truly God and truly man. And we talk about things like the Trinity, and that is a hard thing to get our minds around. In fact, there are aspects to talking about three in one, the Trinity, the Godhead, that, that our finite human minds cannot adequately express. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and yet there is one God. And the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. Within the Trinity, you have perfect unity and perfect distinction among the Godhead. You say, help me understand that. I can say that same thing again, and we can work through it. But that is difficult. But what you need to understand is that Christ was one with the Father, that that perfection of unity and fellowship was all that there had been from the beginning. When God says, let us make man in our image, it is the Father and the Son and the Spirit as one creating. And there is perfection in their fellowship. You and I have glimpses of fellowship, glimpses of beauty and relationship, the beautiful friendship the good marriage, we see these things in shadows and in glimpses. The perfection of the Trinity is something that we can barely get our minds around. Perfect relationship and love, perfect glory together. And that was all Christ knew from eternity. And yet at a point in human history, he laid that aside. And you read through Philippians 2 last week. And he took on himself the nature of a servant being found in the appearance of a man. Humbling himself, being poured out. Something changes there. Christ knew fellowship with God like no other man in human history because he was sinless, because he had that perfect relationship with him. But even Christ longed for that glory to be returned. You read through John 15 in the upper room, and Christ says in John 15, 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus longs to have that glory, that fellowship, that perfection of unity returned with the Father. Now the presence of God in judgment comes on the Son. But when the judgment is over, that fellowship is broken. After the wrath of God is poured out, I think we would expect something different. When the wrath of God is poured out, we would expect then there to be comfort. We would expect there to be relief. But instead, we see the Father turn away. And to understand why and what that looks like, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 22. Because that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is a quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. David writes these words as he flees from Saul. But they point forward to the cross. Psalm chapter 22 
Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Do you see the reflection of Christ on the cross there? And as you go through the rest of that psalm, what you actually start to see are these pointed references to the cross. Verse 6, scorned, despised by people. Verse 7, they mock me, they wag their heads. Pulled directly from what happens in the gospel accounts. Verse 8, he trusts the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. The idea that if he is God's, let him save him. Poured out like water, verse 14. My heart is like wax. My bones are out of joint. The thirst In verse 15, verse 16, the idea of the hands and the feet pierced. You see the reflections of the cross here in Psalm 22. But I want you to look at Psalm 22, verse 3. Because like with these lament psalms, the cry is not the final word. 22.3, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and they were not put to shame. That is the character of God that he has revealed to his people over and over. But if that's the case, if God rescues the righteous, was there any more righteous than Christ? If God comes to the aid of his people, Is there anybody who we would expect him to come to the aid of more than Jesus Christ? No, we would expect that God would be there at the side of the Son to comfort, to restore. And yet as the judgment of God is poured out, as the sins of God's people are placed on Christ, as he makes him who knew no sin To be sin on our behalf, the Father turns from the Son. It does not mean that Christ ceased to be God. He could not. It does not mean that he became less than who he was. It cannot. But in that moment, the Lord treated Christ as an enemy and not a son. You read through the rest of Psalm 22, and Psalm 22, 19 starts a prayer. You, O Lord, don't be far off. You, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then starting in verse 22, it moves everything into the future, talking about what God will do. The idea that he will be faithful. And then the closing verses... Look at verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Even the end of this psalm, the agony, the despair... The desperation that comes from feeling that God has turned his back on his righteous chosen one, David in the psalm, Christ on the cross, it points to a sure result. 
that he'll rule over the nations, that even those who go down to the dust in death will worship him. How parallel does that sound to Philippians chapter 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Paul says, not only those on earth, but those under the earth and those in heaven. Well, what did happen there? In short, what happened there on the cross, as Christ cries out, is a picture of the greatest horror of hell. And that is the abandonment of God's presence to bless, to comfort, to restore. Uh, We tend to think of hell and all these various things come to mind and guys in red spandex and pointy horns and pitchforks. You have to remember, the devil does not run hell. The devil is the inmate that hell was designed for, and he will be there under penalty and punishment and judgment for all eternity along with all of those who reject the Son. But hell is not the pure absence of God. There's no place in his creation, heaven, earth, below the earth, where God is not. In fact, in Revelation 14, verse 9, it says, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. See, what hell is, is the fullness of the presence of God in judgment and the complete absence of the presence of God in blessing. That is why it is so very terrifying, because it is so very final perfection of judgment, perfection of holiness, perfection of righteous wrath poured out and a complete absence of any sense of comfort or hope or restoration. Which is why, conversely, heaven is so very beautiful because all it is is the perfect, uninterrupted presence of God in perfect fellowship with his people. So what we have here on the cross is Christ experiencing the horror of relational rejection by the Father. Because it's here on the cross that this great exchange is taking place. The one that knew no sin has now in this moment become sin for us. And in his holiness, in his perfection, God the Father turns his back on the Son as he bears the sins of his people. And it is so drastic and so terrible that the son cries out. That's point one. They teach you in seminary that good preachers can balance the content of their points. To your encouragement and hope, our points today are not balanced. I'll let you make the determination on what kind of preacher that makes me later. (laughs) We have to spend a long time on those verses because we have to understand what's happening. We don't have to conjecture. We can actually pull from the Bible what is happening there, understand what is actually being accomplished on the cross. This is not a criminal being executed. This is not a heretic that is being silenced. This is not a poor man railroaded by the Jewish leaders, falsely accused and condemned, and if only there was something we could do about the injustice. No, what is happening is the divine judgment against sin poured out on the perfect Lamb of God. Redemption for the people of God is being accomplished at a particular point now in human history. And everything that we have gone over in the book of Matthew before this leads up 
to that. And everything that happens afterward is a result of that. Of that exchange, of that treatment of God toward the Son. So in the last few minutes that we have together, let's move toward the consummation of the cross. Toward the closing of this part of the cup of Christ. And the first thing that we're going to see is that there's a crowd that hears and reacts to that cry. Jesus calls out to the Father, but look at what the crowd says. Verse 47. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And you'll notice very quickly that they have no idea what has just happened. You cannot read through this account without seeing that the general attitude of those that are gathered there have no understanding of the significance of what they are witnessing, what they have heard. And either they mistake what he says, the words sound similar enough, and through pained cries, struggling for breath, it could have sounded like Elijah, or they know exactly what he said, and they're mocking him. Either way, they say maybe he's calling for Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. They give him sour wine and reread through the gospel and the little details so quickly without understanding that even that fulfills prophecy. John's gospel says that they did that not only because he said he was thirsty, but to fulfill what God had said. If you were to read Psalm 69, verse 20, David says, Reproaches have broken my heart. I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food. And for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. There's no comfort. There's no care. There's no relief for the sun. Look at what they say. But others said, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. They want to keep him going to see whether Elijah will come get him down. See, they've said, if you are who you say you are, then get yourself down. They said, if you are truly God's, then surely he can rescue you. And now, why don't you get Elijah to come and take you down? Now, of course, they don't believe for a minute that that will happen. But after all, this is a man associated with miracles. And maybe if they stick around long enough, something miraculous or at the very least, something entertaining will happen. But there's no deliverance for the Son. And in just a few words, Matthew brings us to the final cry of Jesus. Look at verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. From the other gospel accounts, we can pull information. We can actually know what that cry was composed of. And it's composed of two different phrases. Luke records that Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Many of us know that Jesus said that. We might not know that that also is taken from the Psalms. How very much of this crucifixion passage is drawn directly from what God has written to his people. Psalm 31, verse 5. It's a direct quote, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the first five verses of that Psalm are David's cry to the Lord for rescue. And when we understand these things, it is especially powerful given the context of where Christ is. My God, why have you forsaken me? I'm pleading with you for rescue. Rescue me. Rescue my life from those around me. 
And yet there is no rescue, but still, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He knows that although there is no rescue, it is not because God has failed. He knows that God the Father remains faithful. He knows the glory that is waiting for him. He knows that the Father is there and that the Father hears. That the Father is faithful. And the second part, the final part, comes from John's Gospel. John 19.30 says, After Jesus received the sour wine, he bowed his head. And he said, it is finished, and gave up his spirit. It's finished. The physical agony of the cross is over. More than that, so much more than that, the work that the Father has given him to do is done. He said that he would take the cup of the Father, and he has drunk it to the last drop. He received the fullness of the penalty for the sins of his people in his own body. He suffered the agonizing separation from the Father as the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And now the work was finished. We move on from that so quickly. I don't think we would if we had any conception of who heard those words at first. Remember where we are. We're in the outskirts of Jerusalem just outside the city wall in the shadow of the temple on Mount Moriah, where that day tens of thousands of pilgrims will bring their lambs to sacrifice. As their fathers and their fathers before them had done all the way back to the generation that came out of Egypt, because God owns life. And because unless something covers you, there's only death. And so one by one, by the thousands, they would bring a lamb that would stand in their place. And then they would go home. But they knew they would have to do it again next year. And the next year. And the next year until they died. And their children, and their children, and not only that. It would be the sacrifices for every other feast and festival that God had ordained. It would be the Sabbath sacrifices. It would be the morning and the evening sacrifices. It would be the sacrifice for every sin that they committed. Every sin demanding the blood of another animal to come and lay on the altar and stand in their place. Day after day, year after year, lifetime after lifetime, lamb after lamb, goat after goat, bloodshed after bloodshed in this never-ending line of red that extended all the way back to the beginning of the Old Covenant because the wages of sin is death. And something must die. And Jesus says it is finished. And unless you understand the fullness of the weight of the penalty of sin and the demands of the covenant that God had placed on his people, you do not understand the beauty of those words until you read through the book of Hebrews. And again, do it this week. Read Hebrews chapter 7 through chapter 10. It's why the author spends hundreds of words describing the perfection and the beauty and the ultimate goodness of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He says that the law was a shadow. The author of Hebrews says that the law could never make anyone perfect. He says that in the law, there's a reminder year by year by year of the weight and the penalty of sin. Why? He says because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to actually take away sin. But in Hebrews 10, 12, he says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
In verse 14, for by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. One sacrifice, perfecting people for all time. Now you go back and you read those three words given on the lips of a parched and beaten and bloodied Messiah. It is finished, and I don't think there are three more powerful words in Scripture. Because the work is done. A picture of a son and a sacrifice. It's not the only one. Many, many years ago, a father took his son to the place where God had determined. This was his only son, his son that he loved, a son of promise, a son born out of miraculous circumstances. A son given that proved that God was faithful. And then God called for the life of that son. And so the father takes his son to the appointed place. And the son bears the wood of the offering on his back as he climbs the hill. And the son, the only son, is bound to the altar. Because the father had said that the Lord would provide a lamb for himself. And that father took a knife in his hand. And he prepared to slaughter his son. And as he raised his hand, a voice from heaven, Abram, Abraham, stop! Don't lay your hand on the boy. For now I know that you would not withhold your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham turns and there's a ram caught in the thicket and Isaac is climbing off the altar and the Lord has provided. And there on Mount Moriah, they call that place a place to see God, the place where God provides. Yahweh, the one who provides. Some 2,000 years later, a son is born in miraculous circumstances. God, throughout centuries of silence, has proven himself faithful in the most remarkable, the most unimaginable way. And this son is beloved by the Father, fully pleasing to him. And at the appointed time, the father brings his son to the place of sacrifice. And the son will bear the wood of the offering on his own back. And the son is bound to the place of the offering with nails through his hands and his feet. And there in the shadow, in the physical shadow of the temple on Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide for himself a lamb. And the father prepares to slay his son. Only this time there is no voice from heaven. This time the full fury of the father is poured out on his son. 
the only son, the son that he loves. And the father is pleased to crush him. No comfort, no rescue. And the son is the guilt offering. That is why when John sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. What do we do with that? Well, first of all, you and I need to be reminded of the price of sin. We take sin lightly, and I put myself on there. Believe me, I've got a reason. I've got an excuse. I've got something that if only you would hear my side of the story, it makes it not so ugly, not so horrible, not so despicable, not so dirty. We take sin lightly. You look at the cross, and you are forced to come face to face with the price, the ugliness of sin. We have to move through the darkness. We have to move through the wrath of God poured out. We have to move to the separation. We have to come to the place where we understand that sin kills and sin separates. And it has since the garden. Sin alienates us from the one who made us. And sin undealt with means alienation and judgment eternally. And I'm not saying that to bring us to despair. I'm not saying that to out of fear, I'm just thinking that maybe we could use a reminder that our sin has consequences. That that careless word that I don't give a second thought to, put the sun on the cross. That my quick temper, that my demands of others, my bitterness, my lack of self-control, my lack of whatever even convenient or socially acceptable sin you want to fill in the blank caused Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At the cross, we're forced to remember that the wages of sin is death. But that brings us to the exchange. I'm calling on you and on me, on all of us, to take our sins seriously, to see our sin the way that God sees it, so that we can rejoice in the reality of what has taken place on that cross. Because when you see sin for what it is, the glory of Christ shines all the brighter. The Father didn't rescue the Son, instead he treated him as an enemy. But think of it this way, on the, son, on the cross, the Father treated the Son as if it were me. The, the Father treated the Son the way that I deserved so that He might treat me the way that Christ deserved. Rejection and punishment so that I might receive blessing and sonship. So that we might be called sons and daughters of God, heirs to a kingdom. And when we see that, there's peace. When we see that, there's joy. When we see that, our salvation it matters enough to actually work itself into our lives. 
fact that Christ calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm quite sure that at some point, each and every one of us can say that we have prayed that prayer. Where you cry out in the darkness of whatever you're going through, God, why are you far off right now? But the reality of the cross is that Christ bore the abandonment of God so that you and I would never have to. So that when we cry out in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can move immediately to the fact that God knows, that God cares, that God comforts, and that God delivers his people. That abandonment that Christ bore meant that I would never have to. And finally, I want us to think through the nature of the completed work of Christ. It's finished. And either it's finished or it's not. Either he paid all of it or he paid none of it. But how often do I want to pick that up and try to finish what he started? How often do I think that that failure in my past, that I have to make amends for that in some way that the cross didn't? And so I do the things for God. Because maybe finally if I do the things, then God will forget this and he'll be happy with me. And there's nothing wrong with doing the things. God tells us to do the things out of love because he's prepared good works for us to do. But how often we try to work to complete what Christ has said is already finished. Or on the other side of that, we demand that someone else complete the work of Christ. They apologized, they failed, but they're going to finish suffering for what they started in my life. And when I see that they're sufficiently wounded, when I see that they're sufficiently sorry, when I see that they sufficiently learned their lesson, then I too will forgive them. Well, brothers and sisters, if Christ has paid their penalty, then what more would you ever dream of adding to it? No, we won't put it that way. But every time I demand that someone else restitution, give me restitution for their sin, I'm saying that the work of Christ on the cross was not quite finished. We're a people who stand on this side of the cross, redeemed by the work of the Son. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that often cry out in darkness and desperation, and we feel alone. We feel the weight of sin. We feel the weight of circumstance. We feel the punishing reality of living in a sinful world with sinful people and being sinful people ourselves. And Lord, we cry out, my God, why have you forsaken me? With David, sometimes we pray, how long, God, will you forget me forever? Lord, on the cross, in the darkness, in the turning, you remind us that Christ has borne what we will never have to. The perfect wrath of God and the separation of fellowship. Lord, instead, you've promised us that even in our difficult circumstances that you're using them. You're refining us. You're purifying us. You're perfecting us. You're making us more like Christ. And in the end, Lord, whether this world rewards us physically or whether it takes our very life, you will complete the good work that you started because you are always faithful. So, Lord, lift our eyes to the cross and bring us to rejoicing, repentance, and then rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We love you and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.